Photo Shelter presents Vision Slightly Blurred. I'm Alan Murabayashi. And I'm Sarah Jacobs. Sarah, we've talked for years about the intersection of photography, technology, and culture. And I recently came across an article uh, on civilbeat.org, which is a Pierre Omidyar-funded uh, local news outlet here in Hawaii, talking about body cameras that police wear. I've always found this to be an interesting intersection of technology and culture and society because of the fact that the body cam movement for police was an outgrowth of wanting more accountability from the public. And Mm -hmm. so over the years, we've seen police departments adopt these body cams. Originally, people thought that police violence would go down because the cops would be aware that they were being recorded. But in fact, that never resulted. So that's one interesting uh, uh, tangent that's come out of the whole body cam movement. But this particular article, more to the point, really talks about the downside to making body cam footage public that I hadn't really considered before. Because in the past, I've always said, well, police should release stuff as soon as possible. Um, We've seen police departments use various strategies to immediately release or stall the release of footage on various grounds. I've always found the reasons against releasing the footage to be kind of weak sauce. But Mm. this article made me change my mind a little bit. Because I'm thinking back to, uh, you might have remembered a few months ago, the Makia Bryant shooting. This was a teenager who called the police because she was being harassed at her home. And when the police rolled up, uh, she was about to stab the person that was harassing her and a cop shot her like eight times. And so there's Mm -hmm. body cam footage of this that was released pretty quickly. It made me question why the public needs to consume such violent footage so immediately. Yes, there's a reason, obviously, for the DA and the lawyers and and her family to view the video. But the purpose of the public at large to see this stuff, I mean, did did the article change your mind at all? Yeah, it definitely made me consider, just like you said, why does some of this footage need to be public? And do we need to protect um, the privacy of the people that are calling the police for domestic disputes or um, the author, Bryce Newell, who is a professor of media law and policy at the University of Oregon, um, basically shadowed police while they went on these calls and and gives very detailed description of of what was going down for for each call and kind of why why we didn't as a public maybe need to witness that and how the people might have acted differently had they not been being filmed. And we are under such, I mean, we live in a surveillance society, right? Um, And so that idea, that idea though of being surveillance by the police, that had not crossed my mind. And I think that's a really, really good point. You know, on the other hand, the George Floyd video, which wasn't body cam footage, it was a teenager filming with her iPhone did lead to mass protests against police brutality. So that was a, that was a net positive, in, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. I would say, I mean, it sounds crazy not to call that violence. It clearly was violence when he's being choked out for eight minutes. It's not the explosive violence of like a gunshot, you know, eight, eight bullets being fired in, in a few seconds. And, and again, you know, I mean, there were, there were critics who said, what is the purpose of showing a black man being choked to death over and over again? Part of, the, part of the problem is that these videos live on the internet forever. And there's no way for the victim, 
There's no way for the victim's family. There's no way for the perpetrator of a crime who served time, you know, and therefore justice has been dispensed to ever flee the specter of this public visual footage. It's more than just a name appearing on the internet. It's your visage. It's your likeness. And, you know, it, it, it dawned on me, I've known people that have dealt with, you know, the mugshot exploitation. You know, it used to be the old scam where these third parties would get the public mugshots, put them online. And then when families contacted them, they say, okay, I'll take it down for $1,000. It was a big scam. Mm. And, and it was the rich people who had access and the resources to take down these images and defeat the search engine optimization, you know, the reputational harm through search engine optimization, whereas everyone else doesn't have access to it. So you get into this weird inequity thing of like the people more likely to encounter violence are the people who have their images up online forever who can't escape that sort of mm -hmm. perpetual cycle. It's a complicated topic. I mean, I, I, I do think police departments need to be accountable and the body cams uh, provide some level of accountability. I'm just not sure that in every instance, the public needs to have access to that footage. Yeah, I think it's it's a really tricky subject because of course we want to have evidence when these simple things like traffic stops escalate into murders. As the citizens, we deserve that information. We deserve to know that. Um, but these other calls, such as for mental health episodes or immigration enforcement, these type of calls, they don't necessarily need to be recorded always, or they don't even need to be dealt with by the police, um, which is obviously a much larger conversation that is happening um, in politics right now, which is great. The article is Body Cameras Help Monitor Police But Can Invade People's Privacy. We'll have a link to that on our blog at blog.photoshelter.com. Alan, you know I'm a sucker for a photo blog <laughs> and for photo collectives. And a new one has come across our radar called The Black Gaze, um, which features Q&As with black photographers, as well as a directory of black photographers, mostly based um, in the UK. You had come across an interview with photographer Kowame Koda, um, who had a great quote. They always ask the photographer, what does the black gaze mean to you? And he opens it up with, to my understanding, the black gaze simply narrows down focus on black artists. I think it matters because it brings to light a different perspective of storytelling from black people by black people in a way that inspires and motivates black excellence. I just love that quote. Yeah. And, you know, it, it, it's not a revolutionary quote, but it's a reminder to have diversity in the voices that are doing all of the storytelling because you, you do get different perspectives and you get to celebrate different stories. So whether it's black photographers or Asian photographers or, you know, Scottish photographers <laughs> having different point, points of view, photographing, you know, the same things of, you know, the shared experiences that we have in life to me is so important. Um, the Black Gaze, B-L-K-G-A-Z-E.com, founded by Sean Connell, and as you mentioned, primarily uh, focused on UK-based photographers. In the ongoing The World Through a Lens series on the New York Times, a new piece published today by the Brazilian-based photographer Victor Moriyama called Living on the Margins, Surfing on Buses, which chronicles the world of young adults and teenagers literally hanging off the sides of public transportation for the thrills because they really have no other outlets. You know, there's a lack of uh, 
soccer pitches and other leisure activities that the kids can take take part in. So they do this very, very dangerous activity throughout the years and the decades where people have been bus surfing or subway surfing or train surfing. Hundreds of people have been killed in Brazil. Uh, so to me, this was just a fascinating story. And, and I often thought while I was looking at these photos of the Jim Richardson quote, if you want to be a better photographer, stand in front of more interesting stuff. Victor Moriyama <laughs> yes. standing in front of interesting stuff and, and talking about the experience of being on top of the bus trying to photograph these these uh, these people. What did you think of the photos? Oh, man, they make me so nervous. I even <laughs> I even get nervous when I'm on the New York subway. And, it you know, there's just that one person that's going through the train car to try to get to the back. <laughs> that's me. And that's me. <laughs> Oh my gosh, you give me a panic attack every time you do it. Like I, the random stranger that I don't know, I'm like, oh no, oh God, are they going to fall? Um, so looking at these photos, there's a real sense of adventure, a real sense of danger. I mean, you mentioned that people have died from doing this activity. I mean, it's no wonder it, it, they are literally just chilling on the side of a bus while it goes like 30 miles an hour or more. Moriyama, you know, take a look at his uh, portfolio. We'll have a link to his website on our blog. Uh, he's done a lot of work with climate issues and environmental destruction issues, particularly in the Amazon. Um, some really, really fantastic work. And a little known fact I will share with you, the largest population of Japanese outside of Japan reside in Brazil. So, no way. Yeah. Not, I did uh, not know that. To me, not that surprising to see a Japanese surname uh, and seeing kind of a mixed race, Victor Moriyama uh, taking these incredible photos. Alan, we've talked about deep fakes on the show, um, particularly the Tom Cruise deep fakes that oh, yeah. were all over TikTok and how accurate they looked. And so we've kind of been watching what's going on in the deep fake world. Well, the fashion house Balenciaga just staged an entire their entire spring summer twenty two fashion show as a massive CGI production that's full of deepfakes. The show was titled Clones, and the creative director, Dimna Gavasalia, uh, whose muse is this painter, Eliza Douglas, um, she was used as the only model. Um, her face was photogrammetry. Is that the right word, yep. Ellen? Yep, Okay. <laughs> Photogrammetry captured and CGI scanned onto deepfakes uh, models that were actually, you know, wearing the collection. Um, she modeled 44 different looks, and they utilized so much technology to make this show happen, including planner tracking, machine learning, 3D modeling, photogrammetry, and CG grafting. <laughs> it's really unbelievable when you watch this video. I will say that some of the shots look very FPV drone inspired mm -hmm. in the way that they're kind of flying through this, this space. It is hard to believe that this is all computer generated, which yeah. is kind of scary when you think about it. I mean, it's, it's a wonderful um, example of technology. It's also very, very scary that all of this could be created in a computer in such a convincing way. And it makes me wonder... Are models going to become obsolete in the same way that they've Ooh. talked about in the acting profession? Will actors become obsolete or will we be able to always create a, a deep fake version of Tom Cruise 100 years in the future so that his likeness and his estate is always earning money because we're on <gasps> Mission Impossible 122? Oh, you know, my it's kind of crazy. Gosh, that's a really good point. <laughs> 
oh my gosh. And ooh, I think about Scientology, like getting onto that estate ooh. and like, ooh, yeah, okay. We won't go there. But you mentioning that it kind of resembles like drone shots, yeah. the way that the video is, you're totally right. It reminds me of that bowling video Absolutely. that we watched earlier this year where yep. it was a single drone shot going through an entire bowling alley. Um, yeah, be, it just, yeah, the show looks amazing. Um, their YouTube has it up. It, it went up yesterday and as of yesterday, it now has over 30,000 views. Um, it's definitely a spectacle to be seen. It's only uh, a little bit under seven minutes long, so it's definitely worth checking out a few seconds of it. We'll have that link on our blog at blog.photoshelter.com. You know, photographer Gary Hirshhorn is just a New York treasure, Alan. Here, here. <laughs> he is a Getty contributor. He's also a Photo Shelter member, and he must know New York like the back of his hand because he takes incredible shots of the cityscape um, with just some phenomenal weather or moonscapes going on. Um, this week, he came across my Twitter timeline because uh, he had captured this incredible picture of a lightning strike on top of the One World Trade. And I DM'd it to you immediately and you yeah. were like, oh yeah, Gary's great. <laughs> you know, I've been following him you know, over the past couple of years and it's really remarkable. There are obviously... A ton of fantastic photographers in New York City. There are obviously a ton of great street photographers like Andre Wagner, who we've talked about many, many times. Gary has a very specific type of photo that he's taking of the city. They're, they're mm -hmm. sort of skyline based. They're, they're icons like buildings, um, Statue of Liberty, etc. But man, when you mm -hmm. see these images, uh, they're Every single one of them need to be examined, not at Instagram size, but at larger sizes, because the level of detail and his control of the light, he has these remarkable images of the supermoon. He's got the Statue of Liberty and the moon, you know, framed <laughs> together. There was one from a few months ago from the Hudson Yards observation platform, which opened, uh, I don't know, maybe six months to a year ago, where this this observation platform is sticking out of the side of the building. There are a couple of people kind of leaning against the glass. And then you have this huge moon kind of co seemingly coming out of the glass. It is just phenomenal. It's, it really, it's, it's an unbelievable shot. Also, I, I want to go to the edge. That's, that's what that's called. The <laughs> yeah. Observation deck off the Hudson, uh, off Hudson Yards. Yeah, he yeah, he's he's documenting the city in a really consistent particular way that's showing how the weather and the moon and the sun are operating around us. Uh, it's really phenomenal. I've read some of the captions before and I know he shoots a lot from the New Jersey side to get the skyline. And, you know, I've seen instances where he's like, oh, I was hanging out at a cafe and I took this photo and five minutes later, a storm rolled in and. And then I took this photo. I mean, there certainly is a sense of serendipity that helps him capture these images. But the guy is like in the right place at the right time. He's clearly planning a lot of these, these shots. So kudos totally. to Gary. Follow him on Instagram. Gary Hirshhorn is the name. Finally today, uh, you know, a lot of contests are releasing their winner results. And one of my favorite contests is the Big Picture Natural World Photography Contest. Their winners came out. The grand prize winner, Joanne MacArthur, a fabulous wildlife uh, photographer in Australia. Uh, she won the grand prize for her photo of a kangaroo with a joey in its pouch 
In a burnt-out eucalyptus plantation, you may recall that Australia suffered terrible wildfires in 2019 and 2020. And this photo just, uh, man, it just kind of tugs at the heartstrings. But all of these images were just phenomenal, just really, really great images in, in this particular competition. Oh my gosh. Yeah. There's so many great winners. Um, one that really caught my eye was taken by Shane Callan. Um, it was titled beak to beak and it's of two ravens. Um, one has its beaks wide open and the other, it it seems to be examining inside (laughs) the other's beak. And, and in the description, it talks about, uh, how the photographer would observe these ravens and, how much the ravens interact with one another, but he had never witnessed this particular interaction where they were examining each other's beaks in such a way. It's a pretty shallow depth of field, but he nailed the focus. I can't tell you how many times I've shot photos of birds where, you know, you want the eye in focus, but the beaks in focus, or you're trying to get a little bit more depth of field, but doesn't quite work out. So whatever Shane did to capture this, photo, man. It's a brilliant photo. Yeah. Um, the other thing that I love about this contest, they have pretty strict rules about compositing and post-production. So it's more documentary photojournalistic in the sensibility and the, the visual aesthetic. So mm. unlike a lot of why, uh, unlike a lot of landscape contests or astrophotography contests where the things you're seeing don't actually exist in real life because they're doing stacking, compositing. Like everything looks real. Yeah, it, it does, except for there's one that made me be like, wait a minute, what? And also made me sad. It was taken by Ralph Pace and it's of a sea lion and an N95 mask floating by its face. And you can tell that the sea lion is observing it and is intrigued by it. Um, and it almost looks like the mask is, could be Photoshopped in there. (laughs) I know that it's not. Um, but it almost looks fake, but it's also just heartbreaking to think about all the PPE gear that has made its way into the ocean. I think it, it almost looks fake in part because he's using on camera flash underwater and the, the oh. light doesn't travel very far in the water. So the, the mask being closest to the camera is illuminated and has a, you know, a natural white balance where the rest of the water is pretty green. But yeah, to your point. Got it. But yes. you know, all of these contests, they, they request raw files in the final rounds of judging. Okay. Um, and so there's, there's always kind of a check over whether this is a real scene or not. And I'm sure this is a real scene. I have no doubt in That's- my mind about it. I mean, like, I'm sad that it's a real scene. That's really, I guess that's what I have to say. (laughs) Yeah. Well, congratulations to all the winners. We have all the links to everything we've talked about today on our blog at blog.photoshelter.com. Since you're already listening, smash that subscribe button. You can always leave us a comment by tweeting at us at Photoshelter. Thanks for listening this week. We'll talk to you next week. Bye-bye. Photoshelter is the online leader for photography websites and workflow tools. Archive, distribute, and sell your photos in a mobile-friendly, responsive website. Try one free for 14 days at photoshelter.com slash podcast. Then download one of our free educational guides at photoshelter.com slash resources.